when we leave the military, we want to find a place for ourselves in the world. We want to find purpose and meaning in our lives because what we did was really meaningful. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And our goal is to have real conversations that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that truly have the courage to stand out. And man, do we have that for you today. As usual, we are sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business by staying on top of the numbers at netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com different. This episode is a special episode that's part of a three-part series that we're doing on mental health and well-being, featuring three extraordinary mental health experts. Um, you may have already heard the uh, mega-popular therapist, writer, and speaker, Amy Morin. Uh, coming uh, soon is Phil Tool, the legendary psychotherapist who became famous as the performance coach who saved Metallica, and our guest today the incredible Dwayne France. He is a U.S. combat veteran turned mental health counselor, podcaster, and author. And uh, I love this guy. I really do. He's incredible. It was a huge honor for me to be uh, his guest on the 100th episode of his fantastic podcast. And even if you're not a vet or in the military, there's a lot to learn in this conversation with Dwayne. He's insightful, he has a very big heart, and we have a powerful conversation about living a life of service, the challenges and opportunities faced by veterans as they leave the military and get into civilian life, why vets are legendary at things like uh, being entrepreneurs and why they make great employees, the power of having purpose and meaning in your life, and a whole lot more. Go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes uh, for the key takeaways from this episode and how to find the incredible Dwayne. Now, hey-ho, let's go. And so what's the thing that you want the average uh, American to know about the people in our military, whether they're active duty or they're veterans? You know, I think the biggest thing is, uh, is obviously we're just like you, right? Everybody thinks they know, especially when it comes to combat veterans, right? You know, it's, it's one of three stereotypes, either you're, you know, John Rambo, you're going to shoot up the town whenever you come back, you know, PTSD, um, sort of this, uh, you know, berserker rage thing, um, or, or you're a victim, right? You know, that you're some wounded bird that needs to be taken care of and, and, you know, I need to help you for the rest of your life because of whatever damage you, uh, you, you know, you, you, you got in the military, uh, or you're a hero, right? You're some mythic hero striding across the, the universe. And, and none of us are any of those things. I mean, all of us probably can be all of those things or portions of it. Um, but there's a lot of stereotypes that go along with, um, you know, especially current era military, but even the idea of the, you know, when you think Vietnam veteran, you think the homeless guy with the sign on the road and stuff like that. And, uh, and, it's, and it's just simply not true. And so what is it you want us to think about other than that you're just, you're just like you and you're just like anybody else, uh, but you served in the military, you, you've been in the Army. What, what, unpack for me what you'd love the average American to think about 
um, the average person who serves in our military or who's a vet? No, I think um, all veterans want people to understand what they went through. They, I, I think that this is a, it is something I've heard a lot from the clients that I work with is they want people to know what they experienced. They want people to hear their stories. At the same time, they don't know how to tell it and they don't feel like anybody can, can really understand. And so there's this, this struggle within the veteran. Um, but just down, just, you know, sit down and listen to them, obviously respectfully and, you know, and, and don't, you know, ask the, uh, the, you know, did you kill anybody or things like that? But um, veterans have a, a, in my experience, a more global mindset, you know, because yeah, I was stationed in Germany for six years. Um, uh, my kids were born in Germany, you know, some military families, they're exposed to cultures uh, worldwide. Um, but they're also exposed to diverse cultures within the military, right? You know, growing up in, in someone's community, you, you generally interact with the people in that community. Uh, but my first roommate was, uh, was from Hilo, Hawaii. You know, when is some, you know, guy from a city in the Midwest that's ever going to, um, you know, hang out with a guy from Hawaii. Um, but, but we were together for two tours, one in Germany and, and then another three years in the 82nd Airborne Division. So, it, you know, really to understand, don't just say, you know, what was it like to go to war, but what was it like to be in the military? And I think a lot of veterans would, would want to want people to understand that um, because, you know, they feel this gap that, that exists between those who served and didn't serve. Hmm. So you feel different than me because you served and I didn't. Um, I think I, in, when you put it that way, uh, yes, I, I guess I do. I mean, essentially I'm, I'm no longer a soldier um, and I'm not a civilian. I'm this weird third thing called a veteran, which is almost a combination of the two. Um, you're from a, a different culture. You know, it, it's even a different culture from, you know, Colorado to California. Uh, by any definition of culture, the military is a separate culture. We have our own way of dressing. We have our own language, right? And we have, you know, people can't understand us half the time when we start speaking acronyms. Um, I explained people, it's like I went to go live in Ireland for 22 years, right? Yeah, we speak English, but now I'm back in America and I have to, to conform to a different culture that, that I'm just not familiar with. And uh, Sebastian Younger talks about this in his book, Tribe, is, is how different and how out of place veterans feel, you know, a stranger in a strange land. Um, and and they're, even the veterans feel that disconnect. Yeah, yeah. And so what can we uh, non-veterans, non-service members uh, do to make um, our veterans who come home and are, are now not in active military service, what can we do to make you feel more comfortable to welcome you back home? I guess the first thing that comes to mind is uh, don't treat us any differently, right? You know, don't, don't treat us like, you know, don't handle us with kid gloves. I hear this a lot. Um, that, uh, you know, veterans in the workplace being told, oh, hey, if you're going to have an episode, you know, um, you know, make sure you take a break or something like that. Well, you know, just because you're a veteran, I actually had a buddy of mine who um, uh, and he was working in uh, uh, Chapel Hill uh, and uh, he was doing some tech stuff and, and they were joking in the break room. And he said something like, uh, you know, this other guy is like, well, I'll just kill him with kindness. And he got up and walked out. Well, they all knew that the guy was special forces. And he was like, he heard later that they had like a 20 minute conversation. They were like, should we report him? Can, can he, can he, it, was that a threat? Is that going to be, I mean, and it was, and it, and it was just total bull. And, and so don't treat us any differently. 
Um, again, don't treat us like the villain because if, if, if you do that, you might get somebody who's pissed off. Don't treat us like a victim because then, you know, people will, will tend to act like a victim and, and definitely not like a hero. You know, we always say that the heroes are the ones that didn't make it back. And so um, just just treat us like the, the, the fellow Americans that we are with some uh, with some pretty interesting stories. Well, that, that seems to make good sense to me. And that's frankly, that's what I do. I don't you know, I have many friends who are veterans and um, they're they're some veterans that I work with in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I most of the time I forget that they're veterans. Right. Like, it's right. Not, you know, and to your point, when you go out for beers, um, are you apt to hear some pretty cool stories? You are. And, and it leads to some great conversations. But other than that, um, the many veterans I have in my life, I just treat them like they're they're anybody else. Now, I, I have heard some veterans um, sort of don't love it when when people say things to them like, thank you for your service. Um, and so if we want to acknowledge a veteran um, for for serving our country, um, should we say thank you for our, your service or, or, or what should we do to say, hey, you know what, I appreciate what you've done here? You know, it's a, I, I think there's a generational difference. Um, I know some Vietnam veterans that would actually prefer that, right? Because they didn't get that when they came back. Um, uh, but yeah, most, in my experience, most current era veterans um, really feel a little, you know, uncomfortable. Um, well, I know that when I, when I'm, I don't know, at a, um, uh, an event or a conference or something, I bring up the fact that I served in the military I'm doing it to preface that I'm illustrating a point. And, and so they, people interrupt me and they say, Oh, by the way, thank you for your service. I'm like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it get beyond that because I really actually just want to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give you some context about what I'm saying. Um, I, and, and I've heard some people say, you know, welcome home is a, a, a good thing. Or, and, and again, just the, you know, so, so tell me what it was like, or, um, you know, did you enjoy your time in the service? Like actually have a conversation because this for many people, and I think veterans see this and I'll, not that I'm in any way speaking for all veterans. Um, but it's almost like, you know, Hey, good morning or Hey, how you doing? It's, it's just this really, um, it, it's a flippant way and almost an automatic reaction. And there's not any sense of, of, um, of, of meaning behind it with the exception of other veterans. Um, when other veterans say thank you for your service to other veterans, because they actually, you know, the veteran will say they actually get it. I work with um, justice involved veterans here in Colorado Springs and our judge um, is an Iraq war vet. And he says that every time that he, um, he introduces a new veteran to the court. Uh, and he says um, that uh, it may not mean a lot from people who don't know what they're talking or don't have the experience, um, but coming from one veteran to another, it does mean something. And, and so it, there are some differences. Um, and, and then just, you know, just like that question, just ask the veteran, just have a, a regular conversation. Yeah. I, you know, and sometimes I find myself just saying, you know, uh, bless you or, or God bless you. You know, I appreciate it. And, mm-hmm. um, but I, I know some people have a, a tough time. They want to acknowledge um, what the vet has contributed to our country and to our world. And at the same time, they don't want to, you know, step on themselves or make the veteran feel uncomfortable or so, you know, it, we live at a funny time, right? This sort of socially correct or politically correct world and everybody's so easily fucking offended. And, and so, 
um, it can be a little bit of a challenge. I've just tried to be guided by what seems like the right thing. You know, it's like it's like should you shouldn't you open a door for um, a woman? Well, I was brought up by a single mom, and so there's not a snowball's chance in hell if I'm in the right position to do so that I'm not going to hold a door open for a woman, whether it's a woman I know or a woman at a store that I've never met or going to see again or, or, or ladies first, you know, I'm not going to cut a woman off or any of that sort of stuff, or I'm going to be polite to a, a server, a waiter or a waitress, or, you know, there are the certain things that, you know, we get taught to do that I think are, genuine warm acknowledgments of each other and so i don't know i just tried to be guided by that and you know if 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 some veteran maybe doesn't like that i said thank you for your service then you know but i wouldn't interrupt you in the middle of a talk of a story say oh thank you for your service right now keep telling me your story (laughs) right i mean and that's and that's all is sometimes how it is is i mean it people feel uh, I get the sense that people feel that they need to 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 jump in and just to let you know that I appreciate you. That's great. You're listening to me. I understand at least in this moment in time, right, that you're appreciating and, and you've not walked away from this conversation. Um, but it, but that idea of going back to genuineness and 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 yes, maybe some veterans may dismiss someone's actual genuineness when they say, "No, I, I truly do appreciate that you took the time to volunteer um, and and everything else." Um, but then on the other side at all, it sometimes it is not very sincere and it's not very heartfelt. It's almost like you're, you're just opening the door because you have to, and it's convention, not just because you actually want to, you know, make someone stay easier or, or have a positive interaction. Yeah. The other one I find curious and I'm, I'm very interested in your kind of insights around this is um, there are many people in our country who disagree with certain things our military have done over whatever period of time, whether it was the Vietnam War or some of the more recent wars. Um, and and they, uh, because they disagree with what we did at, in XYZ country at XYZ time, they uh, are unfavorable towards the military or the people who were involved with a particular action. Um, and they seem to treat them negatively uh, as a result of their opinion about whether we, the United States of America, should or shouldn't have been doing whatever they think we should or shouldn't have been doing. And I'm sort of curious how you think about sort of the way people um, can sort of take the actions that our government have mandated the military take and and put those, um, if you will, values onto the military who executed against whatever that plan was. And so uh, I'm just curious how you think about this sort of conflating the individuals who serve with maybe I could call it the circumstances under which they served. You know, we saw this a lot, especially um, again, you know, post Vietnam um, that, uh, that really the service members became the, the target of the wrath of the nation. Um, and, and really, that's what it is, right? You know, we have this anger, and then what do we do with it? We can't bring the government in and sit them in the chair and yell at them, right? We actually have to have a target um, to be able to, to to expend some of that anger. And it's misplaced, of course. Um, uh, but I had a, a colleague of mine, a guest on my show, um, Paul Dillon, who said, uh, about the mid-'80s, we started to separate the war from the warrior, right? We can hate the war um, or, or dislike the actions of it, um, 
and we, but we don't have to do that to the warrior or the service member. You know, I, I joined in 1992. It was after um, the Gulf War, so it, there, there was it was a peacetime quote unquote army. Um, I joined because I was tired of sleeping in my dad's basement, and I thought it would be a good way to get to college. And I found out that I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to jump out of airplanes and do crazy stuff. And, and so I, I, you know, yes, well, I joined, and 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 I continued even after when after 9/11 happened. You know, I have deep pride for the country and and I do personally feel as though um, I did things so that my children didn't have to. I think this was a Thomas Paine quote, you know, if, uh, if we were to go to war, let it be in my lifetime so that my children may know peace or uh, probably butchered it. But that idea of I went so somebody doesn't have to. Um, so, yes, there is that. But um, but really sort of the geopolitical stuff, it doesn't matter to us. Right. If. If the government told us to go plant trees in Spain, we'd go do that. If they told us to go invade Spain, we'd do that because that's what that's that's what we signed up to do. And, and you obey the orders of those uh, sort of appointed over you. And, and I think that a lot of people think, oh, that just means you're robots and automatons. And well, that, that's how the job gets done. Right. You know, and, and there have been warrior cultures throughout, you know, millennia. Um, and, and for whatever reasons, um, I actually just had a conversation today with a, a Dr. Ed Tick. I um, mean, he said that um, the the military's purpose is not to you know kill and destroy, is to protect and preserve, um, to protect and preserve you know a certain way of life or a certain group of people and things like that. Um, and so it's not for I didn't go to Iraq for weapons of mass destruction or didn't go to Bosnia for for you know Serbian oil or whatever anything was. Um, I went because my country told me to, and I needed to especially later on, be the leader that my soldiers needed me to be to bring everybody back home. Yeah. And the other thing I find amazing about this is one of the tenets of our democracy is a complete separation of uh, military from our elected officials. And the point being, we want a civilian government Mm -hmm. and we want a professional military in parts of the world where the military runs the country, often bad shit happens, right? And so separation of um, government, a civilian government and military is, I think, one of the most powerful core design elements of our democracy. And the fact that our military doesn't question, just like our law enforcement is not supposed to question, they enforce the laws, they don't make the laws, right? Mm-hmm. And so in, in, at a time where the elected president of the United States goes to our Congress and says, we need to declare war or we need to take this action, we don't want there to be some kind of a fucking discussion, do we? Isn't, no. isn't that the point? Right. That's the whole point, Right. And I think p- part of why we love you is because there is no discussion. To your point, if it's plant trees, it's plant trees. And if it's something else, then it's something else. Yes, sir. Right, exactly. And, and, and you're entirely right that it is a bedrock, right? You know, George Washington could have put himself up as emperor of America or whatever it was. Um, but he stepped down from his military role because he very clearly knew where that would go if we didn't have civilian control. Same thing as, you know, there weren't term limits, you know, George Washington could have gone on and but he felt very clearly that 
this is a temp job and my temp job is over. Um, and, and so through all of this, we, we have the, the civilian um, oversight. Now, of course, you have like a General Mattis. I was a, a, a huge fan. I am a huge fan of, of General Mattis. Um, but he was also very clear. He's like, in that role, I was a general. In this role, I'm the Secretary of Defense. I'm a, I am not a general. Um, and, and to be able to make that distinction. And, and he said something that was really profound, I think, in, in, his, um, in his confirmation that somebody had asked him about that. So, you know, should we have generals in charge of, you know, civilians who were generals in charge? And he was like, nobody hates war like we do. You know, I hate war only the way that someone who knows what war did and is can. I love combat, right? The, the small level unit tactic. I mean, that kind of stuff was enjoyable, but the, the larger point of war, and I think even Eisenhower said the same thing is that if, if you want to send somebody, if you want to tell soldiers and Marines and airmen to go into battle, you actually want somebody that knows the true cost of that because they will understand that um, it, it's not just going to be dollar signs that you're going to lose through this. Yeah. Now, if I was a person, probably a younger person, but you'll tell me maybe older people um, uh, join our military too. You'll you'll explain it to me. But if if I was somebody who I'm thinking about a career in the military, and I said to you, "Hey, Dwayne, you're a decorated vet. Um, you're a counselor, a, a therapist. Um, so you you know you've seen the whole the whole ride. Right? <laughs> what would you tell me about?" Uh, how I should go about making the decision, should I or shouldn't I enlist? You know, this is, uh, is something else interesting, and, and maybe I, you know, you wouldn't boot me off the show because you're not military, but I was a recruiter, actually, for a portion of my military career. Uh, I was in Germany, and I was, um, I was wanting to go to the 101st and, and go to combat, and the Army and its infinite wisdom sent me to Fort Meade, Maryland, to, um, to, to put kids in the Army. I think it was uh, 2003 to 2005. Um, and, and one of the things is, uh, and even there, and it was a good thing recruiting outside of a military installation because I could blow smoke up somebody's butt all day long. They just go ask their dad or their uncle and somebody who served. And so the idea is, um, you know, go in with your eyes wide open, go in under, go in knowing that there are going to be portions of it that really suck. Go in knowing that there's going to be portions of it that are really, really great and go in knowing that you're going to receive, um, uh, is social benefits. You're going to receive personal, you're, you're going to engage in personal growth. Um, but it's not always going to be a cakewalk, right? So, um, and, and the Marines do this very well. They don't try to sell anything other than you're going to be a Marine, right? You know, this is, you're just going to be a Marine. Um, but that you'll be stronger on the other side. And so it's, you know, just have awareness and, and do the research on what it's really going to be like. And once you have, understanding it's the same thing as if somebody wanted to 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 be a marketing officer right they they'd sit down and and at you know what's the what's the job like and what what's the good stuff and what's the bad stuff um but really do your homework and understand and then when you have all of the information the good stuff and the bad stuff then you can make your decision and what are the and if this is too simple a way to think about it then tell me how to think about it but what are the top two or three things as a military recruiter when somebody walks in that door and says, hey, Dwayne, I'm, I'm thinking about enlisting. What are the top two or three things you're sort of looking for, listening for to see whether or not I would be a good candidate to join our service? 
Well, and there are um, definitely things are out of my hand, right? You know, so there's, uh, you know, there's certain limits as far as, um, you know, weight and, um, you know, it, criminal charges, you have to score a certain number on the uh, armed service vocational aptitude battery. So you got to get a certain score. You have to be, you know, a high school graduate GED. So th- there are certain minimum requirements that you have to, to have uh, before you go in. Um, I think that this might be a stupid question, but if I'm a convicted felon, I cannot serve. Is that correct? Um, unless the army and the military has changed some, uh, some, some rules since I've been, I've been out for uh, recruiting since 2005, but no, you, you cannot. The amusing story is, uh, right across the, so we were in a strip mall right outside of Fort Meade and there was a Hardee's right across the, the parking lot. It wasn't even across the street. It was like literally, you know, 30 feet away or something. Uh, and, uh, and I went over there and I grabbed a Coke or something. And the guy behind me, you know, Hey, I'm Sarge, right? I was in my uniform. He's like, Hey Sarge, I want to join the army. I'm like, okay, well, come on over to the office. It's right over there. Pointed out the window. It's right over there. Just come on the other side, whenever you're off shift and we'll talk. And he was like, Oh, I can't. And I was like, you can't. And he was like, well, I got an ankle monitor on and I can't go at, outside of 10 feet of this. And I was like, if you can't leave the Hardys, then you're not going to be able to join the military. <laughs> right. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's restrictions like that. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to stay a recruiter. You can actually, you know, remain a recruiter throughout your military career. I sort of had it in my mind that if this young man or woman sitting in front of me, if they joined and I walked into the motor pool two years from now and I saw them in my formation, would I be okay with that? Then yes. If not, this might not be the right kind of uh, situation for you. Um, the other thing is uh, we find, I, I hate to interrupt you, but Go ahead. You know, there was part of you as a recruiter, and this may be an obvious one, but you're sitting there looking at this person, interacting with this person. And there's part of you that's going, okay, if we were in a challenging situation and, and this person was shoulder to shoulder with me, do I want this person with me? That's part of what's going on for you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and, but also there's the, um, they may not know it themselves. It's, it's almost the idea of seeing the potential in people, right. You know, and getting the sense of, um, you know, do you know what you're getting into? Um, and again, you know, arguably, you know, I've, I've known a lot of recruiters and sometimes we do get a, a bad rap and sometimes it's well-earned because not everyone is, or, or even back then was as forthright with the, the people that, that served in the military. Like I said, I was lucky to serve, um, in, in a, in an area where basically moms and dads were bringing their sons and daughters in and said, Hey, you know, have them join up and, uh, and things like that. Um, and, and again, this was 2003, four, five, right? So this was after, definitely after we had started, uh, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq kicked off right whenever I was there. Um, so, so pretty much everyone knew what they were getting into past nine 11. Uh, I was a platoon sergeant in Afghanistan. Me and my platoon leader had, um, I think at the height, it was probably 68 or 70 um, soldiers in our platoon. There were only two of us that had been in the army before 9-11. All of my my senior uh, section sergeants and everyone all the way down to include, obviously, my platoon leader, uh, because this was in 2009, 2010. Um, only me and one other guy had been in the army before 9-11. And the other guy had gotten out and then came back in. Um, so I think after 9-11, everybody sort of understood what they were getting themselves into. And, um, you know, I don't want to say, obviously it was a little easier, but it was, it was a little bit more informed. Yeah. Now, the other thing I've been curious to ask you about is, you know, over the last couple of decades, you know, Clinton brought in, don't ask, don't tell, 
and then that got eased up. Um, and and so where are we now in your estimation with sort of acceptance in the military of whether it's um, homosexuality? You know, there's been this huge discussion more recently about um, transgender folks. Um, what, what's your headset and what's your assessment of where our military is? Forget what we hear in the press, but in the reality of the people who, who are serving. Um, I and, and most of the people that I served with were uh, under the impression of um, it doesn't matter. And I think, again, Mattis even said that it, it doesn't matter who you go to bed with. It matters whether or not you can get the job done. Um, you know, there have been, um, you know, LGBTQ since time out of mind, right? You know, the, the rumor is Baron von Steuben, who was one of the, he was the um, uh, the founder, the writer of the Blue Book, which was the Army's drill and ceremonies uh, precursor and, and helped, you know, Washington with the Army into shape. There's an argument that he got, or there's uh, rumors that he got kicked out of the Prussian Army for homosexuality. So <laughs> since time out of mind, right? Um, and, and yes, even in the 90s and when it was don't ask, don't tell. Um, it, and I'm definitely not going to uh, say his name, but but we had somebody who was in my platoon that everybody knew. Right. Everybody knew. And, and he didn't hide it in any way. But he was one of the best soldiers, one of the hardest work. He was a leader. He became an E5 before he got out of the military. You know, he was he was very well respected. And. And the other stuff didn't matter. And so I think, again, when it gets down on, you know, troops and boots on ground, um, it really doesn't matter who, what, when, where, green, blue, red. It only matters whether or not you can be trusted when things need to get done. That's what I was hoping the answer was. I mean, my impression from talking to other uh, vets and service members is it's a lot like most of the civilian world today, I think, where, you know, talk about the business world. Uh, at least the business world that I've been in, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know, you know, I, there's lots of industries I haven't worked in, but in the tech world, nobody gives a shit whether you're gay or whatever. The, uh, no one gives a fuck what you are, right? Uh, we care about results more than anything else. And if you're somebody who can produce results that are meaningful and, and, and uh, you know, deliver real value, then um, no one gives a shit. And so it, it sounds like our our service is is not that really or not that much different than than our world well sure and, and you know and i'm not definitely not going to say that it's all wine and roses and you know we, we hold hands and sing kumbaya we have uh, a significant you know issue with sexual harassment in the military especially in this this idea of of uh, um, you know women serving in combat which again has been happening since time out of mind and so you know um not an issue um, and, and so, yes, there are bad actors in every situation. And there's there's people that, uh, you know, hazing and harassment and, and even assault and, and, and worse, um, you know, throughout the military, just like throughout everything else. But but really, you know, in, in my experience, when you got down to it, if you could do the job, then you were able to to be trusted. If you couldn't do the job, well, I didn't have time for you. I'm just checking. According to Wikipedia, as of 2014, women were approximately 14% of active duty and 23% of Army Reserves and 16% of the Army National Guard. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so go ahead. It, no, this was uh, the argument against women in combat ended when my driver, a female Hispanic specialist at the time, 
dismounted behind me in Afghanistan to make sure that I didn't get shot in the back. That was, I wasn't in a combat MOS, but I served with, with, um, uh, female, uh, service members and we got shot at and shot back and we got into firefights. Uh, and it's been that way for, you know, <laughs> medics and, and, you know, it, there have been females serving with males. I've known females that can do the job better than some of the males that I served with. Um, I, I as a platoon sergeant, there were some, some guys that I was like, no, you're, you're going to stay on the base because I, I, I don't really, I'm going to have, I took the person who was um, most likely to help us accomplish the mission and it didn't matter. Yeah. It's so funny. You know, there's, there's a side note. I was at my dentist a while ago and uh, it wasn't my usual hygienist who happens to be a, a friend and neighbor of mine. It was another gal. And you know me, Dwayne. I mean, I chit chat with everybody. I'm a talker. And so we're chatting and how you doing and this and that. And she's telling me she's uh, the big thing in her life at the time was she had recently um, started playing on a co-ed soccer team and how much fun she was having. I said, oh, that's fun. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, and she was telling me it's fun to be around men again. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, my husband's pretty conservative. And so ever since we've been together, I've kind of had to not really spend any time with my male friends because he doesn't like me spending time with men. And so now that I'm on this co-ed team, I get to spend time with men again. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, you know, just because we have penises doesn't mean you have to have sex with us. <laughs> no, I mean, absolutely. And it's, and it's just the same thing as, as any place in the workplace. As long as there's professionalism and as long as you, you know, you have your boundaries and everything else, as long as, as everybody keeps their parts where their parts are supposed to stay when you're doing the job, then, you know, and obviously, yes, you know, when you're in, um, uh, you know, uh, long stressful situations and, and long, you know, uh, distances from home and things like that. You know, uh, I used to tell, uh, of course, you know, not, none of my leaders, you know, having sex with their, their privates or anything like that. But look, whatever goes on in the barracks, make sure that you keep it in the barracks, because if you bring it to the platoon, if you bring it to the motor pool or the squad bay, and it starts to impact what we're doing. It's the same thing as workplace romance, right? You know, you can do whatever you want to do after hours, but once it starts coming in the office, then it starts to become inappropriate. So if everybody conducts themselves professionally, then professional things will happen. Yeah, makes total sense. Now, what would you say, let's say I was an employer. I was a hiring manager. I was in HR or something like that. What would you want me to know about um, hiring vets? You know, this, uh, and this is, it's very much closer to, to what I'm doing now is, uh, you know, we don't all have PTSD, right? This is one of those things that, that, you know, employers hear things and the media reports it. And every time there's, um, you know, and, and, and not, you know, uh, downplaying the tragedy of the shootings, but every time there is a shooting and I do it myself, it was the guy, a veteran, because then they're going to play that up in the media. Right. Um, and, and so, not everybody has PTSD, not everybody served in combat, right? And, and treat that individual just as you would treat any other individual that, that came in. Um, the thing is, is, you know, we're not allowed to ask as, as employers, you know, do you have a certain, you can't say, do you have the PTSD or something like that? And so without asking that question, people will sort of make that assumption um, that, every veteran has, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. On the other hand, yes, there are certain things that military 
um, military service changes people just like, um, you know, um, if, if, you know, a fire service changes people or, you know, if first responders, it's a different mindset or growing up on the South side of Chicago changes people. Right. And so don't make the assumption that changes people. My parents were divorced when I was five, that changed me. Right. Right. And by the way, there are many things that change us for, for, for the good. Right. And, and, Nobody says, well, are, are, did your parents get divorced? Do you have PTSD about that? I don't. But, you know, uh, it, is a, it is a weird thing. And, you know, I believe he was our first veteran guest. I'm almost positive. His name's Christian Anschutz, a former Marine, mm-hmm. uh, a great uh, technology entrepreneur and leader today, and also has a wonderful nonprofit to kind of bring vets and, and uh, employers together. Uh, called Project Relo. Anyway, he, he, he was making a similar point, which is on one hand, it's good that there's more awareness of PTSD. But on the other hand, there's really been this unintended consequence that from a hiring point of view, people have this fear that every vet is, is, is about to, you know, walk around twitching and freaking out. <laughs> right. And, and so and this is and, and again, um, um, one of my guests had, had said, you know, we're we're over pathologizing this trauma. Right. You know, that that everybody thinks everything is trauma. You know, no disrespect, but you, your parents divorcing would not give you PTSD. It's not in the criteria of traumatic enough to give you post-traumatic stress disorder. It, it may cause you other distress. It may give, you know, it may have caused, you know, emotional distress and things like that. So everybody, if, if we think of, you know, the pie of veteran mental health, everybody thinks it's PTSD or TBI and that's it. But there's a lot more than that, right? What's, Substance, what's TBI, Dwayne? Uh, traumatic brain injury, right? Ah. So um, you hear a lot about um, uh, a CTE and, and NFL players and, and stuff like that. So these brain injuries, Junior Seau, horrible, horrible situation, right? You know, all these former NFL players that have these, um, these brain injuries and the military and the NFL are working very closely together because the traumatic brain injuries, the survivability in the current conflicts is much greater than the way it was in, in past conflicts. Our equipment is better. Our medical response is better. So more people are surviving and they're, they're surviving with more catastrophic injuries. So um, you know, one concussion, you know, we all, I, I had a hard landing at Bragg in the late nineties. And so I got knocked out for 15 seconds, but you have some veterans that are really struggling with severe traumatic brain injuries with, you know, exposures to blasts and falls. And so these two, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury are sort of the two quote unquote signature wounds. But then that's not everything that, that all veterans are dealing with. Number one, I, I've heard people that say they, they were surprised that you could get PTSD if you weren't in the military. Um, of course, vehicle accidents, sexual assaults is, is a significant one that results in PTSD, but uh, natural disasters, right? We, we probably saw a rash of post-traumatic stress reaction to the hurricanes that happened in 2018 or the wildfires that are happening in California. Um, and so it's these traumatic events that, that threaten us, but not every veteran or not every individual that exposed, that gets a car accident, who is in a car accident, gets PTSD any more than every veteran in combat um, gets PTSD. But there's a lot more. So when and I think we talked about this when you came on my show was when we leave the military, we want to find a place for ourselves in the world. We want to find purpose and meaning in our lives because what we did was really meaningful but that has nothing to do with PTSD. That has to do with my life satisfaction or how do I figure out how to meet my needs because I need to figure out how to meet old needs in new ways when I left the military. When I was in Afghanistan, I never had to worry about, 
where my food came from or where my, I had people that gave me that kind of stuff. My job was to take care of other things. So their job was to take care of those things for me. When you get out of the military, you have to figure out how to do all of those things yourself. And so, and, and, and those aren't, I can't look it up in the book and say, there's a, a mental health diagnosis because you feel like you don't have, you know, no meaning and purpose in your life, but it's still a very real aspect. And this goes back to the employers. You may be considering that veteran for a position that's going to help them find that meaning and purpose in their lives, that excitement that they used to have because veterans want to serve and they want to serve because they're used to serving. And, and I'd want that kind of employee all day long. Now you're somewhere where I get excited, particularly because uh, one of the venture capitalists I respect the most, his name is Jim Getz. He's a senior partner at Sequoia, one of the top firms in Silicon Valley. And according to Forbes for, I don't know, three or four or five years running, he was considered to be the number one venture capitalist in the world. They put out their annual list. So he, this is a non-trivial guy in the business world and in the venture capital world. And one of the things he said, I think it's incredibly powerful, is that what Sequoia looks for are what they call mission-driven founders. And the legendary vets in business and legendary entrepreneurial vets, and I want to get to entrepreneurial vets in a sec, um, to me have seemed like people who in their post-military career are looking for another mission they can get behind. Joining a company that's up to something and look, I think profits are a great thing, but most of us are not just motivated by that. Most of us are motivated by making a difference. Well, or I don't know about most, but there's some percentage of us that mo are motivated by making a difference and making money while making a difference. And so the vets that I know or that have been super successful want to join companies where they feel like, yeah, it's us against something whether it's a competitor or trying to bring a new technology into the world for, you know, making the world a better place. We want to change the world, you know, all that stuff. And, and that heart-driven, not head-driven necessarily, mission approach to work. And so I've often thought this is a lost opportunity for companies because if vets, have, if vets join the military to be on a mission – and to work together shoulder to shoulder in this way and have this incredibly unique experience, if they're looking for a way to, as best as possible, mimic that um, shared sense of purpose, then a mission-driven company would seem to be a great way to do that. And if you're looking for that kind of an employee, then a vet might be exactly what you're looking for. But that's the way I think about it. How do you think about it? No, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I, I often tell people I have as much, if not more, meaning and purpose in my life now than I did when I was in the military because I did find a new mission, right? My new mission is to help veterans and, and service members and their families overcome the challenges that they experience from, from serving or being associated with the military. That is my mission. Um, and, and, and arguably, um, some people have said, you know, maybe too passionate about the mission or too into the mission or, or things like that. In the military, when, when you leave, I assume, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this might have been your case when you finally decided to retire for like the first time or how many times you retired. But, the, but there's a hole in your life, right? Especially when you leave the military, there is a lot of space in your life. And if we don't be careful about what we fill that space with, it's going to be filled for us. For a lot of veterans, that's filled with 
you know, inappropriate relationships or substance abuse or, you know, uh, dangerous behavior, because we, we have that there, again, we have a lot of time on our hands. We, we have a lot of energy and many times we're, we're relatively young, right? What other, you know, I am quote unquote retired, but I retired at 42 uh, or 41 or whatever it was. Right. And so I still have another, you know, career, another 25, I'll be a veteran twice as long, knock on what hopefully as I was when I was in the military. And so there is this, I was even thinking about this, this other, the other day I had a, a busy day. And I, I was like, and I was thinking I was in that mission mindset. It's like, Oh, I got to go. I got to jump through. And I almost felt that rush again. And, and it's good, but it can also be bad if you take it too far. Right. You know, there's, there are some detriment to the mission oriented mindset because, you know, you, you tend to blinder everything out and don't, you know, stop and smell the roses, so to speak. And so this idea of someone that wants to help, someone that wants to serve. We're, we're, we're used to being a part of a team um, and, and we want to actually help. And that's where a lot of the frustration comes in that, um, you know, veterans are underemployed. We don't hear a lot about veteran unemployment now, but veterans are underemployed um, to what their capacity could be. You know, you, you come back and you know all the cliches that you were leading men and women in Afghanistan and all of a sudden, you know, here's a broom, you get to sweep out the, the bathroom at the back of the bar. And, and you're like, this, this doesn't feel like as important as what I want to do, which is why I think a lot of veterans try to turn to entrepreneurship um, to be able to, to get some of that back. So maybe let's, let's go there. I've gotten to know over the years a handful of very successful uh, veteran entrepreneurs and I don't have any data. Maybe you do, Dwayne, but it seems to me that um, some veterans anyway are, are uh, sort of there's a natural drawn or they're drawn to it or there's, a, there's, a, there's something about entrepreneurship that works for veterans. And, and at least the ones that I've gotten to know have had a lot of success being entrepreneurs. So help, help, help me understand entrepreneurship and vets. So I think that um, a lot of it has to do with um, the desire to make an impact, right? We, we want to do something. Veterans actually want their, they want their energy to, um, to mean something. Uh, and again, something that, that you said when you're on my show, and, and I referenced a little bit earlier, um, that, that honestly, I, and I've been, I've been citing you, right? I've been using you as a, uh, as a reference um, is since you said it, but this idea of, for some people, there's not a lot of place in the world. You argued that, that arguably for you, you had to make your place in this world uh, because of the dyslexia and dyscalculia. Um, and my counterpoint to that was that veterans had a place in the world. They're no longer allowed to be in that place. So now they have to make it a different place for themselves in the world. Um, and, and what better way to do that than through entrepreneurship? I'm going to create something that, that maybe wasn't there. And it doesn't necessarily have to, it can be entrepreneurship if you want to use that buzzword, but it can, but it, but it's bringing a different mindset. It's bringing a problem solving mindset because that's what we did in the army. That's definitely what people did in the Marines is you don't have a lot of resources, but you still have to get stuff done. And so you need to figure out with the resources that you have that in that you, you know, in no way have enough manpower or materials to accomplish the mission. And yet you still have to figure out how to accomplish the mission that's what we did. And I can't think of any other better way to describe entrepreneurship. Interesting. And one of the things that I've learned in this regard um, since starting my podcast, Dwayne, is as a uh, civilian, 
my ignorant um, uh, sort of context or, or uh, assumption, if you will, is probably a better word, is that military folks in a post-military uh, life, you know, in a work environment, are going to work well in a command and control situation because the military is a command and control hierarchy. Well, and I guess there's some truth to that. You'll tell me. But here's the thing that I've learned that I was ignorant about. And, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate to have guys like General McChrystal and, you know, Chris, his partner, Chris Fussell, and, uh, you know, a, a bunch of these amazing um, uh, military leaders on. And, and one of the things they educated me about was that our military today, more than ever, is uh, essentially a, a, a bunch of network nodes. Mm-hmm. that they're small tactical groups that get deployed and they need to make de- decisions on the ground. And that there's, in many cases, there's no higher authority calling the shots. They are where they are and they're doing what they're doing and there's a small group of them and they need to work together. And to your point, maybe they don't have a lot of resources. They're in a challenging situation and they need to make decisions uh, immediately and then report back and coordinate and so forth. And so what our military has evolved to is essentially a high-performance network with a lot of um, uh, interdependent nodes as opposed to, you know, a traditional command and control hierarchy. Um, and then I have some questions about that. But, but that's what I think I've learned. But again, I'm ignorant. So you tell me sort of how you think about command and control versus kind of interdependent um, connectedness, if I could call it that. Right. You know, and, and, you know, of course in, in different levels, there are hierarchies and, and, um, you know, if, if you're, you know, sort of at the battlefront and, and, uh, or not that there is such a thing quite anymore, but if you're out on a combat outpost, what happens back at, you know, division headquarters means much less than what's going on on your little 15 man fire base. Right. You know, and, and so, and, and they're absolutely right. And I definitely would not, you know, I think uh, disagree with general McChrystal. Uh, we called him uncle Stan, by the way, I think I told you that, but uh, we, I, I served under him, but, but that's a, that's a great point is, is he was in Afghanistan the same time as me, but, but his, in, I was a platoon sergeant all the way almost down to the lowest level. And he was, you know, the, the, uh, commander of, of all the forces of Afghanistan. Um, but I think it's been like that, you know, when you hear these stories that it's been like that throughout time, especially you think about after D-Day and in the 82nd, 101st, and little group of paratroopers, right? And they call them LGOPs and, and these, these little, you know, five or, or six man teams and they'd pick people up and they'd create, and they would just, you know, go tearing around France, disrupting stuff as much as they possibly could. Um, you know, same things with, with, uh, you know, guys on a small patrol base in, in the middle of Vietnam. And, um, and so I think that there is a sense of, I know that I am a very small cog in a very big machine, but every cog in that machine is also a very important cog. Yeah. We're, we're replaceable. I was surprised when I retired in, in uh, August of 2014, I went here on Fort Carson and, you know, the flag went up, the flag went down, the army kept going without me, which was sort of surprising. Um, but, but it's one of those things that, that you don't, you realize that you're part of a smaller, uh, you you realize that you're part of a larger mission and a larger machine, but you're also a very, very important part of that machine. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that regard, <clears throat> um, 
it would seem to me, and it's certainly triangulated with my experience with entrepreneurs who are vets or more entrepreneurial vets, that um, they actually, and again, I'll admit my ignorance, they actually work better without an instruction manual, so to speak, than I would have imagined, right, with a blank sheet of paper. Um, They don't need to be told what to do. Um, they can be highly, highly creative, highly, highly innovative in the moment. Because I, I, you mentioned it earlier, uh, in a lot of ways, your job is to solve problems. And I would imagine solve problems, obviously, in real time and in c- certain circumstances, uh, very challenging situations. And that's really what an entrepreneur is, right? It's somebody who's trying to solve problems in real time in highly challenging, uh, in some cases, high adrenaline type situations. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is the idea of everybody thinks, you know, the, the robot, the automaton, you're just following orders. And I, you know, and I think a lot of that comes from, you know, like Kali and Eli and, and even going back to the Nuremberg trials. Oh, I was just, you know, using that as a way to, um, you know, deflect responsibility, I guess. But I know that I was highly creative in, in a lot of it's actually one of the things that I enjoyed about the military career is how creative I could be when it came to, to leadership and mentorship and development, which is again, another reason why um, veterans are very responsive to mentorship, which is critical to, to entrepreneurship um, is because we're used to that. You know, our platoon sergeant teaches our squad leader, our squad leader teaches our, um, our, uh, you know, the privates and everything else. And so it's one of those things that um, we are more creative than people think Um, after, after my uh, after my master's in clinical mental health counseling, I finished out a master's in business administration with the um, public administration um, focus. And I was sitting down with the dean, and she was like, "Oh, you served in the military. Oh, you're going to learn so much from this MBA program because leadership in business is much different than leadership in the military." And I said, "Well, that's great. I look forward to learning what you have to teach me." And I found that. A lot of the examples and metaphors that I used in for my military career actually helped people understand different aspects in my MBA that it's not all that. that leadership is leadership. Be good to people. Don't be jerks, right? And, and take care of people and mentor them and help them grow and give them the resources. Um, that, again, these misconceptions of, you know, you're just black and white and don't color outside the lines, it really doesn't work. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, military or not, you know, um, I recently wrote this blog post and did an episode of the podcast called Fuck Hustle and all this hustle, hustle stuff I think is really um, not helpful. And one of the major reasons for that is when you look at the data, there's what you could call a burnout crisis in our country. You know, according to the Gallup organization, 44% of people feel uh, burned out sometimes at work and 23% feel burnout very often or always and u.s corporations spend 190 billion on healthcare dealing with this burnout so whether you want to look at it on a personal basis um, for the individuals who are feeling this way or at the corporate level it's it's very costly uh, emotionally intellectually and and financially and so just your experience as a mental health professional you know what would you say to me about if i said to you hey i want to have I want to be, uh, I want to have great mental health and I want to be proactive about my mental health and my mental well-being. Um, what are your general thoughts about, um, about mental health? 
uh, the first thing that comes to mind is treat your mental health like your physical health. Um, address mental health and wellness. And even, you know, and even that, that and, you know, <laughs> the, the name of my website, right? It was like, oh, you know, uh, mental health has a, a negative connotation, veteran mental health. So does behavioral health. So does whatever, you know, we try to call it because we're not, a, we're just trying to change the words and we're not addressing the underlying uh, assumptions. You know, when I say physical health, you don't automatically go to the thought of cancer or diabetes, you know, you think of, of fitness and, you know, and, and, you know, good eating and good habits. Yep. But when you say mental health, you are oh crazy. Right. And so, it, of course, in this in the nation, um, we have a, um, a very long way to go when it comes to talking and thinking about mental health. Um, but that's definitely specifically what I'm trying to do, uh, along with others with me in the in the veteran community is change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. Um, I, it's as common as, is going to, you know, uh, the dentist, right? You don't always want to go to the dentist, but you want good dental health, right? You're not going to, you just went to the dentist the other day. You're not going to go to the dentist every three weeks if you can avoid it. Right. Cause it's not well, in the always case of my dentist, you know, and I live in a very particular kind of the world place in the world. Uh, my dentist is a surfer dude and well, he's yeah. got a great staff and team. And when I show up there doing, you know what he says to me? <laughs> He What's says, that? Hey, nice to see you. And he goes, so what do you feel like today, a tequila or a scotch? And um, I have a shot of tequila before they go to work. On me. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, and, and, and so maybe, you know, you go to your dentist more often. But it's one of those things where we, we take care of our, our physical health in a preventive way. But if I, as a mental health professional for the veterans and, and, and military spouses that I see, if I was a medical doctor, I'd be an emergency room doctor, right? Coming, people coming in, you know, either just before the crisis, during the crisis or after the crisis, where I'd really prefer to be, you know, the physical therapist, somebody a little bit farther upstream. That's Let's figure out how to, you know, address some of these issues. Um, there's an organization called Mental Health America that they say that um, trying to get these things before stage four. We don't wait until cancer is at stage four to treat it. We treat it at stage one or stage two. But when it comes to mental health conditions, we want to wait. And, and even this is individuals themselves uh, or families, they want to hold it in until it's at that stage four. And so if entrepreneurs, um, you know, if a new entrepreneur is part of, uh, say, a, a startup incubator um, addressed, you know, psychological fitness as well as financial you know, all these other things that you're doing, then then maybe it wouldn't be as so high. But it, it has to be. Um, it being preventive about it rather than being reactive to it. And, you know, what are some things that you would focus me on if I, if I want to say, okay, great, I want to be preventative. I, I get that this is, you tell me, a daily practice, just like eating uh, well and uh, exercising should be, for the most part, a daily practice, although we all, you know, veer off course from time to time, of course. But in general, what are the things maybe you do in your life or you advise your clients to have, uh, instead of mental, uh, low gene, mental hygiene. Well, you know, and there is a lot of science around, um, mindfulness, uh, and mindfulness meditation. Um, I come from, uh, a wellness perspective. Most, most professional counselors in my experience, we come from a wellness perspective where I'm, I'm not treating somebody as if you're sick and I'm trying to make you well. Um, maybe you're not functioning as well. And how can I make, you know, how can I help you become better? 
Um, and so, you know, it may be, again, not often as, as I should, but I do engage in mindfulness practice and um, a, a lot of people find benefit in, in yoga. But a lot of what these are is just paying attention to the present moment. You know, how am I currently feeling? How, you know, uh, current attention with awareness is, is, is how it's described. And, and being able to say, you know what, where am I? You know, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling that good right now. I look around in my environment. Is there a reason why I'm not? You know, if there is, then maybe I need to solve that problem. If there's not, you know, I can kind of let that go. Um, so a lot of it has to do with awareness, awareness that, you know, maybe I'm engaging in some behaviors that, that aren't very beneficial. Uh, and then if that, if those behaviors are hurting me or my family or, or something, then take an action to, uh, to change it. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I think, you know, maybe life's not that complicated. Like just no unnecessary self-inflicted wounds <laughs> right like well yeah a lot of what causes us pain and suffering is, is crazy shit we do or say to ourselves right or or things that we're react people think right you know that uh, you know oh um you know he didn't smile today he must hate me right or you know she you know, blew right by me so you know she must this is a huge, here's an example um, for, for a long time in, in my current clinic. And I've been there for five years um, when my doctor would message me or said, Hey, we talk. Um, and, you know, or, or, Hey, can you come here a minute? We need to, you know, whatever it was. And my anxiety would shoot through the roof because when you were in the military and your commander, your first sergeant says, we need to talk. That means even if you didn't screw up, somebody that you're responsible screwed up and you're about to get your butt handed to you. Right. And so this was this was baggage that I carried into, so to speak, uh, into my um, yeah. into my post-military life and just being able to be aware of, you know what, that's and I even, you know, and, and I was right up front with it. It's like, oh, by the way, when you say that, it you know, it, it makes me feel a certain way. Um, and just being aware of what we anticipate others are thinking about us. Um, and, and just, I, I think you talk about it, the background conversations, but in the, the front stage conversation, backstage and front stage conversations, we spend so much time responding to what we think other people's backstage conversations are. And we usually get it wrong because ain't none of us mind readers. Yeah, exactly. And, and often they're not thinking about us at all. <laughs> no, no. I got another colleague who said, us. right. I got a, a, another colleague and, and this coming is pretty cynical coming from a fellow mental health professional, but he's also a veteran too. Uh, but he says, you know, uh, 50% of the world don't care that you have a problem and the other 50% are glad that you have one. <laughs> I mean, we, we really, uh, you know, how many times that, that we are, are harder on ourselves than other people are harder on us. And, and that goes back to that sort of self-inflicted wound. Uh, listen, I know that if anybody said out loud to me the kinds of things I say to myself in my head, I would deck them. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly what I say to, to a lot of the veterans that I work with. I said that, that if somebody said about your daughter what you're saying about yourself, you'd punch them in the throat. Like, well, yeah. Well, then why are you going to say it to yourself? Right. Why are you going to say that about yourself? Um, and, you know, and nobody beats the person, uh, nobody beats us up or beats ourselves up like the person in the mirror um, and, and say, you know, we don't have to keep doing that. And we can back off of that. You know, this is a side note, but um, we had Dr. Uh, Sean Stevenson on the podcast, the three foot giant. 
And uh, one of the things that he's done for many years to um, kind of be playful with himself, and I, I assume, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I assume to um, reinforce his self-esteem, whenever he go- goes by himself in a mirror, he winks at himself. It's the way, yeah. It's corny, but I, and I, it's not like I've been doing it often, but every once in a while, ever since he told me that, I don't know, maybe one time out of 20 when I, when, when I remember uh, I see myself in the mirror, and if I have that little, you know, uh, reminder in my head, I can hear his voice in my head. I'll, I will. I'll look at myself in the mirror, and I'll wink at myself. <laughs> Double gun fingers. Here's the Jew, guy. You the man. <laughs> you the man. Uh, well, Dwayne, you know, I could talk to you forever. I, I, I just love what you do. I love everything you stand for. Your commitment is so... Um, there's this expression I heard years ago. It's like, who you are speaks so loudly, I can hardly hear what you're saying, right? Like, who you are comes across so loudly. And I just enjoy learning from you, hanging with you. And 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 I really just, this is going to sound like I've lived on the West Coast too long, but I'll say it anyway. I just, you know, I love who you are in the world. It's very, it, it, it makes me happy to be around you and to know that you're doing what you're doing. So I want you to know that. Um. And, uh, you know, as we complete here, are there any other things that you wanted to touch on before we wrap? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I appreciate what um, I appreciate that feedback. Right. You know, you know, as, as a podcaster and, and, you know, my show and the blog and a lot of times I, I, I say that I'm performing in a fog. Right. And you don't get that kind of feedback a lot. Um, you know, every once in a while you hear somebody, uh, you know, call, calling out from the fog, you know, hey, I hear you keep going. Um, and, and the same thing to you. I think when, when I first uh, connected with you, it was actually on uh, Joe Sanok's podcast. Um, and, and I think even when I reached out to you, which was, was awesome that you responded, was um, I couldn't even wait for the book to get in the I had to leave work early, go to two different bookstores in Colorado Springs to go find Play Bigger. And, and I was like, and, and, and I shared it with people, and I've been sharing it with people um, just to be able to say that, you know, it, this guy gets it. And, uh, and, and you're an example of somebody that wants to, you know, you, you love veterans, but you just want to help everybody. I just want to say, I appreciate that for you. Well, thank you, Dwayne. We have a mutual, uh, admiration society. We have a, uh, mutual follicle society going on here <laughs> or yeah, thereof. it's a, it's a, um, it, there's, there's four of us, your mom, me, my mom, and you, we're all four on the, uh, the, the. Lockhead France admirations. <laughs> exactly. There's at least four that we know of. <laughs> exactly. All right, Dwayne, anything else? No, I think that's it. Well, thank you, brother. I really appreciate you spending this time with me. Thanks for doing your podcast and doing the great work that you do. And, uh, you know, I hope you'll come back and uh, we can continue the conversation. Yeah, it's always, uh, I, I think that um, it's a mark of honor if you're, you're um, invited back. It means you didn't, you know, crash and burn too much. Always. And you always have a place to stay in Santa Cruz, California. Sounds good. Thanks, brother. Yeah, Dwayne France on the podcast. (laughs) I sure hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. Now, if you're going to grow your business, you got to know. Your numbers, that is. And uh, my friends at NetSuite are going to make sure that you're always on top of the numbers, the critical metrics that matter in your business. For example, NetSuite's order management capabilities help you streamline your order process, 
remove any manual bottlenecks you might have, and prevent errors by establishing a smooth flow from sales to quote to order fulfillment throughout the entire life cycle and keep you on top of the critical metrics and numbers of how things are flowing through your entire business. Uh, NetSuite allows you to ensure timely invoicing and, most important, payment. And who doesn't like to get paid? <laughs> With NetSuite's order and billing management capabilities, you can integrate your sales, finance, and fulfillment teams to eliminate errors strengthen revenue recognition, and drive accuracy and efficiency throughout your entire business. Visit my good friends at NetSuite at netsuite.com different. And while you're there, you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry as a listener to this podcast. Because with NetSuite, you'll always know what you need to know to grow. <laughs> All right, we would like to thank... Uh, Dwayne's incredible business. You can check him out at veteranmentalhealth.com and you'll learn more about his podcast and his book and all the other cool stuff Dwayne's got going on. That's veteranmentalhealth.com. Uh, the number one bestseller by Heather Clancy and myself, Niche Down, uh, How to Be Legendary by Being Different. Check it out on Amazon.com. The incredible folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is a nonprofit that I've been involved with since before it got started. And our mission is to help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check it out, OneLifeFullyLive.org. Now, are you feeling a little overwhelmed? Do you want to take back arguably the most important thing you can take back in your life, which is time and give yourself some more time? Then check out my friends at Bottleneck.online. Bottleneck is uh, a, an incredible service that um, will allow you to tap into virtual uh, uh, assistance and allow you to scale yourself, hand off uh, tasks that are better handled by somebody else so that you can get on to the stuff that's most important. Bottleneck. Dot online. The official coffee of this podcast is Verve Coffee in Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Tokyo, and always online at vervecoffee.com. Now, speaking of Santa Cruz, if you live in Santa Cruz and you're thinking about taking your fitness to the next level, why don't you start to train like it matters with my good friends at Paradigm Sport. Check out ParadigmSport.com today. And a podcast I love, the B2B Growth Podcast by my friends at Sweet Fish Media. I was recently on a couple episodes with them, had a blast. Check out B2B Growth Podcast. All right, I need to tell you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational uh, purposes. And as usual, clearly, all episodes do contain nuts. This Oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And it is produced by the legendary Jamie J and edited by the incredible Sarah Parrish and Mike D. Show notes by Roanne Nostros. And our newsletter, hey, go to Lockhead.com and hit subscribe and you will get our newsletter that is produced by the incredible Karen Onahog. Don't forget, Linda Carter is the real Wonder Woman. I know the new Wonder Woman's awesome, but for me, it's all about Linda. Never forget, um, you don't want to jog near a prison. Bad idea. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. I really appreciate you investing part of your life with me. Uh, stay legendary, and don't forget, follow your difference.